Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guests Larry Port and Dave Maxfield, we play a round of disposable income. And then we're going to make this show more efficient. Do we even need a host? But first, your host, Jared Correa. It's time for the Legal Toolkit. And I haven't even sheared the sheep yet. And yes, it's still called Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I've never actually used a stubby nail eater before. That's right. I just eat nails on my own. I'm your host, Jared Korea. You're stuck with me because Robert Stack was unavailable. Ultra Magnus just doesn't have time for this shit. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm also the COO of Gideon Software, Inc. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with both Larry Port of Rocket Matter and Dave Maxfield of Dave Maxfield Consumer Protection Law, I've got some things to say about engagement agreements. That's right. I said engagement agreements because I don't like to call them fee agreements. It's so crass and limiting. It's not just about the fee, because if it was, you just send an invoice out to your clients, right? The reason you call it an engagement agreement is because it is respecting the entire engagement between you and your client. So what I wanted to talk about today is, first of all, probably a good idea to have a written fee agreement, even if your jurisdiction doesn't require it, and some don't. So I want to talk today about five upgrades you can make to your engagement agreement. And the last one is going to underscore why I'm calling it an engagement agreement. So here we go. Upgrade number one, a technology clause. So law firms use technology and clients are largely unaware of what technology they're using. So by adding a technology clause to your fee agreement, which again, just describes at a very basic level the tools you use in your practice, that gives your clients the ability to sign off on those tools. It also gives you the ability to present yourself as a forward-thinking law firm that uses modern technology, like cloud tools, make it easier for your clients to communicate with you, and also, this is a great way to underscore the fact that you're concerned about client security. So let's give an example. Let's say you have a case management software that you're using, and you like to use the client portal in that case management software, which is a great thing to do because your data stays encrypted as you share it with clients, referral sources, et cetera, et cetera. You may say in your technology clause and in a, hold on, spoiler alert, communications clause, which I'll talk about in a second, that you want your clients to use that tool exclusively to communicate with you. You may also get fairly aggressive about that. I have an attorney I work with who tells people that if they don't sign on to the client portal within seven days of signing the engagement agreement, he's going to fire them. You don't have to be that aggressive about it necessarily, but you want to alert clients to technology you're using. You want to alert clients to the importance of data security. And to the extent that the technology allows you to communicate with your clients, you want to indicate a preference. More on that in a second. Second thing, 
which we've talked about in this podcast quite a bit, is the payment model that you elucidate in your engagement agreement. And I would like to take another moment here to advocate for Evergreen Retainers. Evergreen Retainers are fantastic. As I said, we mentioned this on the podcast before. And the way they work is you take a retainer from a client, as you normally would, but you're able to re-up that retainer with the client. That's why it's called an evergreen retainer. Think of it as like filling a gas tank, right? Let's say your retainer is for $1,000. And the deal is that every time that client's retainer amount dips below $500 at the end of that month or at the end of that payment period, their obligation is to load that back up. So let's say the engagement agreement's down to 300 bucks. Clients are required to put 200 bucks in, get it back up to 500. Pretty easy way to run a practice if you're willing to run trust accounts. And using evergreen retainers and stop work orders, as our friend Brooke Lively has discussed in this podcast before, is a fantastic way to generate more consistent income to your practice and never to bill in arrears. So include that in your engagement agreement. Number three, file disposition. And when I say disposition, I mean, what do you do to get rid of your files? There should be a clause in your fee agreement covering that. Oh, I did it myself. I mean, engagement agreement. So make sure that your file disposition is laid out and your clients know what that means. So do they get a chance to get their file back? Does that come to them in paper? Does that come to them in electronic format? Are you destroying files? Are you keeping files forever in electronic format? Are you storing paper files in your garage for the rest of eternity? Please don't do that. Depending on which state you're in, you may have a template file disposition clause that you can use that's accessible through your state bar association. And if not, there are fee agreement template clauses out there, including template file disposition clauses. But you wanna have something like that in place here. Not only does it communicate to the client what their relationship to the file is gonna look like after the case is over, which some clients have questions about, it also allows you as a law firm to schedule destruction of documents or whatever file disposition tools you've decided to use and methods you decide to use. It commits you to that because you've laid that out in your fee agreement. Oops, engagement agreement. All right, number four, scope provision. This becomes more and more important as law firms move towards ever so slowly, glacially, different pricing models, potentially unbundled or discrete representations, limited scope representations. It's important to tell the client what you're going to do in a case. And if you look at the very basic elements of a fee agreement, you're looking at the basis or rate that you're going to charge the client and then what you're going to do for them. So that's scope provision. So if you're trying to limit the scope, just remember that you want to be clear about what that is in the scope provision in the engagement agreement. If you don't, if your scope is overly broad or unclear, it may be construed against you in a court case. You do not want that. So when you're thinking of the services you provide to your client, try to limit that scope to the extent possible. And again, there are templates out there for scope provisions as well. Last thing, kind of alluded to this before, but you want to have communication guidelines in your engagement agreement. And that may relate back to your technology clause. But you want to tell clients your preferences for communicating. And again, this is another way to underscore your reliance on data security. So if you're a family law attorney, for example, tell your clients, hey, if you share an email with your spouse that you're about to get divorced from, maybe you stop doing that. <laughs> you can lay out some advice. 
You can lay out some guidelines about how you want to receive information. This is a great place to talk about the client portal if that's something you want to do. You can talk about what uh, a real emergency is in the practice, an actual emergency, not the client emergency, that they just have to talk to you immediately for no significant reason necessarily. You want to talk about hours that you're open and you want to take calls. You want to talk about how quickly you return calls. That kind of stuff should all be laid out in a communication clause in your engagement agreement. Then you'll probably have to have the conversation again, let's be honest, but at least you have a foundational agreement in place that you can use when you do have to have that conversation about communications. So I got five for you. I got five on it in terms of five changes you could make to your engagement agreements to modernize them. What more could you want? Now, before we get to our discussion on lean law, though I think lean law probably gained 25 pounds during the pendency of the COVID-19 pandemic, with Larry Port of Rocket Manor and Dave Maxfield, Dave Maxfield, Consumer Protection Law, let's hear what your friend and mine, Joshua Lennon, has to say in this edition of the Clio Legal Trends Report, which is sure to be, wait for it, Engaging. Here's a fact. In 2018, only 23% of clients were open to working remotely with a lawyer. In 2021, 79% actively looked for a lawyer providing remote options. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio, and this is just one finding from our recent Legal Trends report. This massive shift shows that remote communications has become a real expectation amongst clients. Video conferencing, in particular, is becoming a popular format, with over 58% of clients preferring video conferencing for their first meeting or consultation. Offering remote communication options, along with phone and in-person services, will give your firm a major advantage over others that don't. For more insights on changing expectations of legal consumers, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O dot com forward slash trends. Okay, let's dip into some Dole Whip, everybody. It's time to interview our guests. I got two guests today. It's a big time episode. And those guests are Larry Port, who you probably all know is the founder of Rocket Matter, Law Practice Management Software. And then I've got Dave Maxfield, the founder of Dave Maxfield Consumer Protection Law in South Carolina. Gentlemen, how are you? Great. How's it I'm going, excellent. Jared? Pretty good. I, lo- I, lo- I love asking you both at the same time so you talk over each other. Sorry, <laughs> I had to do it. So you might be asking yourself if you're listening, why are these two guys together on the show? And th- there's a reason for that, unlike much of what else happens in the show. That's because they wrote a book together called The Lean Law Firm, and they've now got a course about The Lean Law Firm. So let's talk about like the concepts behind this lean law firm. Like, what does that mean? What does a lean law firm look like? I mean, it's beyond using business processes, right? Larry, if you want, you can kick this one off. So, so basically lean, people think that it means like cost cutting and, and really running a yeah. bare bones firm yeah. so that you like, um, but what it really refers to is it's a specific way of like viewing your law firm as a system and measuring uh, the different components of that system so that you can, increase your revenues and improve your efficiencies and really reduce the amount of waste in your law firm, which contributes to the those kind of elements. So, I mean, Dave, would you say that's a, a, a decent halfway summary? Yeah, I'd call that decent. Um, no, I mean, I, 
I think that's pretty accurate. You know, the thing is, is that it's the way that, like, if you look at the manufacturing world, or at least, like, companies like Intel or Toyota, you know, the very successful manufacturing world, it's the way they've been running things for, like, years and years and years and years. And you dip, you know, into the law firm world, and you see that, like, you know, some big firms are professionally managed and they do things a certain way, but they're kind of tied to the billable hour. But then you get the vast majority of law firms that are small and medium sized and a lot of them on like contingency basis and things like that. And they're not using any of this stuff. And it's like all businesses work the same way. You take some kind of raw material, you put it through some process, some finished product comes out the other side and you get paid for that. In the contingency world, you know, we get paid on the end based on that, on our results. You know, what do we produce? And um, what turns out to be the case that I think is the overlooked factor in small law firms is like the quality of our production is really important, but the speed is really important mathematically because it yes. dictates like, yes. well, how many of these units am I going to make in a given time? Yeah, that's. I think some of the analogies you made were interesting. So we talked about manufacturing, going back to like the assembly line with Henry Ford, right? A lot of stuff comes from auto manufacturing yeah. in particular. They want to crank the cars out of the market, into the marketplace as quickly as they can. So like when... I talk to law firms about this. Sometimes they blanch at this concept of like, let's do things more like a manufacturing plant. So how do you guys get people past that initial objection? Because a lot of law firms I talk to, they don't want to think about running their business this way. They want to sit in a room and pour over case law. And that's what's interesting to them. Yeah. So, well, the first thing to know is that it's not like this is the first knowledge-based industry that would be taking the leap from manufacturing uh, to be able to run their businesses. The the thing that I would say is that like it's made the leap already to software and to government and to healthcare and all sorts of different places. So so the first thing to know is that it's not like this is this radical idea that we came up with. It's like, well, let's try this with law. It's it, yeah. it's pretty much everywhere but law. So that that's the first thing. So we're we're trying to catch up. The second thing is that like you know what we try and tell people is that like if if you don't layer some business processes on top of what you're already doing, you're kind of in the book, we say that you're running the business like it was like 1911, like before we, you know, there's like this mechanized measurement of businesses. But in reality, it's like people are running their businesses the same way a blacksmith might in like the right. 1500s. It's like yeah. a trade and you get paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, Dave, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think we should stop saying that it's like what healthcare does, because I mean, to me, that's like oh, the yeah. biggest turnoff ever. It's like whatever yeah. they're doing, let's not do that. <laughs> but, you know, I th- maybe that's something that they're trying to do with varying degrees of success. I mean, I think the way you get people interested in it or the way that has interested me is the fact that there's a tangible financial benefit to it. I mean, you start to see yeah. your numbers go up. Uh, And the other thing is, I think you start talking about metrics and people's eyes glaze over, but we're really talking about, it's like, look, you don't need to measure like everything. You just need to measure like a few things that matters. I mean, if you go back to sports and you talk about Moneyball and everybody thought, oh, well, this is for years, they thought, well, we'll just look at this guy and he looks like a baseball player. But then they would start to look at like on-base percentage plus slugging is like a really key. Or how much does like Kevin Euclid get on base? You know, that turns out to be really, really important. So they actually narrow it down to fewer metrics. And that's what we do too. We're like, there's a few things you focus on. Focus on those. Don't worry about the other stuff. It, it frees you up from these other things. And then the other thing is that it, what it really lets you do once you build a good system is that runs itself and it frees you up. You know, if you are that kind of a lawyer, I sure as hell am not, but that wants to like <laughs> read a bunch of case law and like pour through that stuff. 
right. you know, whatever it is that you do that you love, you can do more of that and focus on what you're you're really good at. What what maybe only if you're the only lawyer in your firm, what the lawyer has to do instead of all these sort of business details that are, you know, nag you, but they're they're ever present if you don't tame them in some way. Yeah, gotcha. That's a great answer, I think. I think a lot of lawyers just like change management stuff, but specifically like they've probably grown up with a certain image of what a lawyer is and mm-hmm. they're afraid that this is going to change how they practice law. You know, just to hit on that, I now teach this as a class at the University of South Carolina School of Law. We teach Lean oh, Law Firm Lab. Yeah, which is yeah. great. And huh. and those kids definitely come in with a very defined media-based preconception of what it looks like to be a lawyer in the real world. And the great thing is it's like, it can be like whatever, I mean, you're a great example, Jared. I mean, it can be like whatever you want it to be, really. Do you, you want to come into work wearing an anthrax t-shirt and a Braves hat? You can do that, you know? Yes, yes. can and do. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Freedom, baby. Yes, no, that's cool. So you guys also have converted this into a course as well. You've still got the book available. And yes. you've got some new concepts coming out in the book as well. So do you want to talk about why you made the choice to turn this into a course? One of the cool things we should mention about the book, if, if people aren't familiar with it, is that the ABA, we, we talked them into letting us do it as a, as a story. So the book is actually like a business novel where there's a main character who's got to kind of save this failing firm. And then they let us, you know, in a, in a further display of bad judgment, let us do it as a graphic novel. So there's comic book panels in the oh, book. Really? You know, it's Are you yeah, the whole thing. That's it's a graphic cool. yeah. novel. Yeah, oh, first first ABA is, graphic novel. It is hard to know when we are serious, but yes, we are serious yeah. about this. Wow, I like so that. Okay, go so ahead. So we go ahead. Uh, we did it as a graphic novel, and so that what that means is that the audio book, you know, you're not listening to some textbook. You're listening to a story, which That's makes cool. it real real listenable. And so, but what we're really trying to do with the course is, like, I watch my kids get assigned, like, oh, you got to read the Scarlet Letter. So immediately they start looking at, like, Netflix to find, like, the Scarlet Letter. And I'm like, listen to me. It's like, there's going to be a movie on this shit somewhere. Yeah, to to me, more is no Hester Prynne. Just trust me, kids. You know. But, But, you know. I did see that, and I'm like, well, we have to have another way to deliver it. We've got new content to add. How do we get that in? And how do I how do we put it together in a way it's it's we call it the five stage sprint where it's like digestible you know 40 minute segments that you can stop and start whenever you want giving you these concepts and if you want to learn it in a day or a weekend you can do it if you don't have time to read the book and get a bunch of new stuff and a bunch of downloads like worksheets and spreadsheets and things that will really make these things kind of concrete and usable like immediately for lawyers that's what we were trying to do plus naked capitalism we were also Oh, naturally. Yeah, Yeah, that's fair. All right, I got one more, like, question for you guys here before we get into the last segment, which is, um, I like data analytics utilizing that to better manage a law firm. Like, I think everybody agrees at this point that that's a smart thing to do. And you've actually developed some analytics as far as new concepts in your program. You were talking to me before we started about this dollar per case unit per day type of tool you're using. And this notion that you talked about before, which is like, let's drill down to stats that are going to tell us something that's real broad about our law firm so we don't have to look at all these metrics that don't necessarily mean as much. Could you talk about some of those metrics and how you developed those? Dave, can I sing your praises here for a second? Like, honestly, this is like legitimate. So it's one thing for me to like, you know, be a software guy and come in and start working with all these law firms and be like, geez, guys, what are you doing? But it's it's another thing for Dave to be like, okay, this is like what other people are doing. 
And one of the big things that Dave brought to the table was uh, the notion of two things. Uh, well, three things, really. Well, one is throughput rate, which is the amount of things that you're able to finish in a given time period, like how many cases per year or yep. something like that. Then we have this thing that he developed called the income formula, which it's basically a financial forecast, but it really only takes into consideration your throughput rate. And then the other thing is cycle time. So th those are kind of like the fundamental pieces and cycle time is how long it takes you to finish a case. I mean, those are the foundational elements. And what Dave did that's very interested is be able to is able to layer these things on top of a, an operational law firm, which I found to be pretty insightful. That's great. All right, Dave. Yeah, I, I think you. I think you I think you have. To I think I've been set up at this here. point. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, a couple of things, and thank you, Larry. I think that like what we were really trying to get at. You know, the the cool thing for me is I've got this small law firm with you know I got a couple employees, and I got and I like it that way. That's how I want it to be, and a lot of People yeah. like me, I think, really love that, that freedom. And so the cool thing is that coming up with like an income formula is like we say, what can we control and what can't we control as much? We can control to some degree like the value of our cases. We can say, okay, I got this. We'll use a PI firm, for example. You get somebody, God forbid, gets hit by the log truck. That's what we always say in the South. Yeah. Like, oh, I got hit by the log truck. That's like a thing like, in the South, yeah. isn't it? I've actually heard it that is. from other attorneys oh, yeah. in South Carolina. Like, Completely. there are wayward logging trucks everywhere in the South. Everywhere, everywhere. It's horribly yeah. violent. The, the log truck case is kind of like, that's a whale of a case. You know, that can be like this yeah. huge case. And, and we sort of think, you know, you know, first of all, to talk about value for a second, cases have a certain starting value. You, you don't have to be... F. Lee Bailey, or, you know, if yeah. I can still say F. Lee Bailey, sure. to make a lot of money on a log truck case if one comes <laughs> in. You just got to be able to get that case. But that's something, the value of that case, can you enhance it? Can you make it better by being a great lawyer? Sure you can, but only to a certain degree. You know, it kind of has its own starting value. And the big realization for me has been that I have some control over the value of cases, but ultimately other people get to decide what they're worth. A jury, yeah. an insurance adjuster you know, somebody else, I've got way, way more control over what happens inside the law firm. And so the other part of the income formula is like what Larry referenced as throughput, which is heavily influenced by, well, how much does each case take to get finished from beginning to end? And, and I have a ton of control over making that time shorter. I'm really the yeah. one who can control it. And so when you're talking about dollars per case units per day, kind of the counterintuitive realization is that some cases, you know, we have, we, we're, we tend to think of our best quote cases as the ones that are these whales, the biggest ones, and those are great. And we think we just need more and more of those. And we don't pay attention to how long those are actually taking to finish. Sometimes your best case is a case that maybe puts $2,000 into your pocket, but it happens in like three days. And so if we measure like how much was this case worth for every day that I held it in inventory, that turns out to be a really useful measurement about like what should I be looking for more of? What should I be marketing for? Because if you can put a whole bunch of those easy, small, quick turnover cases together, you know, you're not reliant on like the occasional big case. Right. And you can really make, you know, very good living with a combination of those things and one that you can control a lot more than what's the starting value of your case. Great points. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. So now you guys can tone it back a little bit. We're done with lean law firm stuff. Will you come back for one final segment? It's going to be a lot of fun. Maybe. Yeah, yes. totally.
Yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun for me. Okay. So we're going to take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Partner with rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products and includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Welcome, everyone. Here we are back at the rear end of the legal toolkit. I call it the rump roast. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. Larry and Dave, you're back. Today, we're going to play a brand new game I developed just for you. I'm calling it Disposable Income. Okay. So I know I've personally been thinking about weird shit that I could buy to frustrate amuse my wife, but I do that all the time. So I'm going to name some crazy things that rich people have actually bought. And I want you to tell me, would you buy this? Would it be of interest to you to own this thing as a human being, regardless of whether or not you could afford it? And of course, this is just a game, everybody. So no one needs to take this too seriously. I'm certainly not. And after all, I'm not actually selling any of this stuff yet. That is until we start releasing Legal Toolkit merch. I hope you say salad spinner, because I totally am in the market for a salad spinner. You know what? We're going to start small, and then we're going to go bigger. And I'll throw in as well. I'll tell you if this is something I would buy or not. Because some okay. of this stuff is actually shit I've thought about buying. All right. Because we make a lot of kale salads, and you you know it's very difficult to wash that. So we know you're in on a salad spinner, so I don't have to yes. ask that question. Okay. Now, let's do the next level, because I think this is like a step up for some people. Laundry and dishwasher pods. How do you guys feel about that? As opposed to laundry and dishwasher detergent, like the liquid. I've recently upgraded to pods. They're a little bit more expensive, but I love them. Thoughts? I like the pods. Oh, uh, I, like I have the a reason. Pods. Yeah. Yes, yeah. go, Larry. You have, a, you have a reason for your like of laundry and dishwasher pods. I spill detergent all over the place routinely. So pods are helpful Fair. for me. Now, well, let's move up the chain a little bit. Something a little bit more expensive. 
something I'm strongly considering buying right now. So I'll put that out there. I want your advice on this. 3D printer pancake maker, also known as the Pancake Bot. Now available as Pancake Bot 2.0 for $450 online. What it does is it 3D prints images to make pancakes. Now, partly this is because I really suck at making pancakes. I can't even make like Mickey Mouse pancakes. But with this thing, I could create like the Statue of Liberty or any number of images I see on Google. Thoughts? Does anyone so have a, a pancake bot? I really Wait a want second. One. So it would, it would make a pancake in whatever shape you want? Is that what you're saying? You put like an image in the system and it will 3D print the pancake of that image. It's amazing. Oh, so it's actually, but it's making an edible pancake, not like a carbon Yeah, like a real pancake. pancake. Yes. Yes, it's a real pancake. I'm going to say no, unless it was combined with that one 3D printer that can that is like enormous and can make a house, and you could make like a house-sized pancake. Then I would buy oh, it. Now that would be amazing. Okay, okay. Like my favorite uh, scene, my favorite. Just just to clarify, my favorite scene in almost any movie is in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs when the pancakes fall from the sky. <laughs> Oh, this is like right up your alley then. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, this reminds me of all those movie montages where they make houses out of pancakes, like in Rocky. Oh, yeah, that was the best. And Rocky had to taste that, that chicken excellent. through the pancake. That was amazing. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I think this discussion, you know, the good thing is, you know, when they say Jared has like the nine to 12 year old lawyer demographic lockdown, you can see oh, yeah. why, you know, we have yeah. discussions like <laughs> I mean, this is on all the YouTube videos with all the yeah. creators. They're all, all right. doing it. Too. Um, Zebra. I've been wanting to buy a zebra from my backyard to really piss off my neighbors for a really long time. It's like a running joke on the show. I've done this on like three podcasts already. So there are actually websites out there like Zebras Are Us, for example, which is a real website where you can buy zebras. It's legal in most states in the United States, and they go for about 10 grand. I really want a zebra. So far, my family has said no to this. I would consider it actually. Um, I, I would like to buy an alpaca and like have, but I, I think it's you got to have a bunch of them because a zebra to get lonely. So you can't just buy one zebra. That's oh, not nice. That's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's well, a fair point. I'm sure it's that. legal in Florida, Larry. Though I mean, there's I'm sure it is. No, no <laughs> question. Actually, yeah. when you move to Florida, everybody yeah. gets a zebra. Right, and then they and then they arm it. No, they yes. Arm it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> I think what I would like to do is 3D print a zebra-shaped pancake. Ooh, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Not only because is that better, Yeah, easy to clean up is clean up. Yeah. Cleanup's better. Yeah. I was just, I wanted to, like, I think it would be really majestic if I, like, rode out and boxer shots on my zebra to, like, pick up the mail. That's kind of my use case oh, I'm thinking of. Oh, okay. Yeah. How yeah. would that be? I'm seeing that now. It's, yeah. a, it's a one-shot thing, but... Are you still all ripped? Like, that? Like I'm just trying to picture it in my head. No. Like, you still no, got I'm, the six-pack? Definitely not ripped. Okay. More of a right. keg. Well. So like mostly, as I said, mostly I'm doing this to frustrate and annoy my neighbors. So it's better <laughs> that I'm not ripped in this case. All right. Here's another one that I think I would not, I would not want one of these because I think the cleanup would be terrible. But there's a 227 pound golden toilet. It's a fully functioning toilet. It's a sculpture called America by an Italian artist. <laughs> and it is currently, it was currently stolen. No one knows where it is right now, but it was originally housed in the Guggenheim Museum. And so it's $4 million to buy and use as a toilet and randomly $6 million to buy as a piece of art. I don't know what the difference would be, frankly. And so early on in the Trump White House, they asked for a loan of a Van Gogh painting to put on display in the Oval Office. And the Guggenheim offered this instead. So if you could get like a golden toilet on loan for your home, would you do it? I wouldn't. I think like it would be a disaster. 
I don't want to clean it. I would not. No, I don't want any part of that at all. That's insulting. The Italian made a golden toilet and called it America. I know. Isn't that fucked up? (laughs) (laughs) We're only allowed to make fun of America. (laughs) Well, only we. Yeah. Well, when you said buy, you said it was $4 million to like buy and use. Yeah, you can get this on a loan. You just call the Guggenheim and you're like, hey, could I display the golden toilet at my house for a week? You know, our, way out here. our local library checks out art too. I wonder, you know, maybe I could at the Richland County, South Carolina Public Library, they may have. And you know, here's the other thing about that could be a bronze the, toilet that you could uh, get instead from the <laughs> just throwing a it bronze out there. toilet might be more in my like wheelhouse price wise. <laughs> but you know, when you think that, that being a metrics guy, when you said like 227 pound gold toilet, like the first thing I thought of was like, that's not very big, gold's really heavy. So, I mean, yeah. that's probably not, I mean, so the main thing is like, am I going to fit? Will I fall off? That's what I would worry about in that situation more than like that's the fair. ideological statement it makes. I'm going to make a gold litter box and call it Italy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very upset about this. <laughs> I'm sorry. You have to Google this afterwards. There are a lot of inflammatory articles. All right. I got two more for you guys. We'll see how many of these actually make the show. All right, this is not something I would buy either. I think this is overkill. But there's something called the Ford F750 World Cruiser. So it's it's, it's like a Ford 150, right? But it's built out, like blinged out. It has a full living room, a bathroom, a kitchen, and six people can sleep in it. Full bathroom and shower and a lounge area with a flat screen TV. Great for tailgating? I don't know as a daily driver. So this was created by some guy who runs like a construction company in the American South. I forget where exactly, but <laughs> really it's in a, the American it's badass. South. Are you sure? Yeah, not not <laughs> that you would expect this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This dude's from this dude's from upstate Maine. No, so it's a Ford <laughs> F seventy. It's called the World Cruiser, and you could you could live in this thing. I don't know. Like I'm not a big camping person, so that would not be on my list. How do you guys feel about the World Cruiser? Positive. Isn't there a mm. movie where like? There's some people who are the last people on the earth who are driving like exactly what you've described. And the earth's like, quite possibly. Big, I haven't yeah. seen it. I need to, though, if it's out yeah, there. Yeah, it's, it's good. I, right. I don't remember what it is. So we got but, two uh, no, no's on the world cruise. No, that's a yes. That's a, that's a yes. Yeah. Oh, we got one no and one yes. Okay. Larry's yeah, a time Not breaker. for me. No. Not for me. They need to change it to the, like, change the name to like the end of the world cruiser. <laughs> oh, the apocalypse vehicle. Yeah. I like that's that. Actually, brilliant. <laughs> I like that. All right, you want to do one more? I got one more. This is this is the All most right, fun one. one. I really, I really want this. A cannon, your own cannon. I got something that I'm going to read off of Reddit from a user. Okay, I guess. This wait Reddit. a second. Can can we? Um, I guess I should have told you this that at at the beginning of the podcast. Do you own a cannon? I'm a minimalist. So, um, sorry. <laughs> I have about three shirts. Uh, So I would. So the answer to most of this stuff is no, aside from the solid spinner. That's all right. Which I introduced, by the way. Yeah. Yes. That's all right. Well, no is fine. No is fine. Dave is, I think, going to be the other side of this because he's in on the Ford F70. Let's see if he's in on a cannon. Strong, yes. Yeah. uh, Don't you want a cannon? Yes, I spent most of my middle school years trying to construct the very thing you described. So out of like pen tennis ball cans. And uh, so, yeah, absolutely, I would buy a cannon. So uh, this is actually a post from... Right. Well, I mean, if you got the apocalypse truck, you might as well have the cannon as well. (laughs) Yeah. Just be on the safe side. Yeah, exactly. 
I got this Reddit post that I was reading with this guy. I was talking about his uncle who had a cannon in his backyard, and he had specially made bowling balls for it, and he would just <laughs> fire off the cannon randomly, and the bowling <laughs> balls were like 100 bucks a piece. So he's got this property with like all these embedded bowling balls everywhere from his home cannon off his back deck. <laughs> I, I don't know about... you know what, I, I know you're a minimus, I, Larry, but that's, yeah, that's going to sound... That, that is, sounds amazing that to me. That sounds like honestly. a lot of fun. But <laughs> every, every, every minimalist needs a cannon that fires bowling balls. I, I I would argue right. the, the other thing is that like i might ask for a howitzer because it sounds cooler than a cannon because it's got a oh that's name. true that's true yeah all right we can go with that well, the, and so the guy with the bowling ball cannon the rest of his money he just wasted clearly yeah i mean really honestly well he had a 4750 parts in his garage <laughs> so he had that going for him all right, guys, thank you for humoring me. I personally had a ton of fun on this. Thank you so much. No, this was a yeah. lot of fun. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Jared. If you want to find out more about Larry and Dave and their Lean Law Book, check out leanlawfirmbook.com. That's leanlawfirmbook.com, where you can read the book, probably, obviously, or check out panels from the graphic novel. That's right. There's the graphic novel, as we heard. Or listen to the podcast or take the course. Or you can do all those things. Why not, right? Maybe they'll create a zip line at some point. Now, for those of you listening in Lone Cabbage, Florida, let's get you some more cabbage. Our Spotify playlist this week is all about making money. So get that paper and you too can buy a golden toilet. That'll do it for another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast. Now, even though I'm inefficient, I look damn good doing it. That's why I remain the host of this semi-legal podcast. And so this is still Jared Korea reminding you that ancient Romans used human urine as mouthwash. But I just stopped doing it last week. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.